This is a Federal News Network podcast. For every would-be immigrant to the United States, there is a government form, or several forms. A recent count of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services forms shows astonishing growth in the number and length of forms. We get details on what it all means from the Cato Institute's Associate Director of Immigration Studies, David Beer. Mr. Beer, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And let's begin with quantifying the situation, the growth in the number of forms and the length of forms you have written about. Give us the uh, the top line numbers here. Yeah. So when the agency was launched as part of the Department of Homeland Security in 2003, the total length of all of the forms, and, and there are a lot of different types of forms that you might need as you go through the immigration process. The total number of pages was 193. And now in 2022, or now into 2023, that we're over 700, 701 pages worth of forms that the agency is requiring in some way. And so the average form length, so, you know, that's just the total number. The average form grew from about three pages to about 10 pages since the agency launched uh, two decades ago. And are these forms still mostly paper or are these online forms? Mostly paper. The agency does allow online filing for select group of forms, but they make it so difficult to use. It's not like the IRS where, you know, you have tax preparers will have an ability to just instantly file from their proprietary software onto the IRS website. That USCIS has created this form, but you have to basically, you know, you prepare your application on your own somewhere where you can save it. You know, you're not going to prepare it on their website, right? So you have to prepare it and then cut and paste into the squares that they allot for the answers. And it's a very onerous and time-consuming thing because, you know, if you're an attorney, you go through the application with your client and then you have to file in this very stilted and difficult to use format. And it's just easier, frankly, for them to just send it in by mail. You know, you print it out and you send it in. And that's more difficult for both the agency and the applicants because they just have not figured out how to create something that's usable and easy for attorneys and their clients. And this growth in forms, usually a form is a result of regulation, and a regulation is the result of some enabling legislation. Is that the case for USCIS? Well, of course, there's a statutory basis that they point to, but the vast majority of this increase is just based on agency discretion. There hasn't been any overhaul of the immigration system since at least 1990, or, you know, some people could say 1996, there were some major reforms, but really there has not been a major change since 2003. So we're not talking about Congress coming in and saying, here's a whole lot of new requirements that you need to incorporate into these forms. It's more the agency saying, we're going to take it upon ourselves to collect more information and demand additional requirements from the people filing these forms. And what is the effect on the agency of having all this information coming in? Well, it takes longer to process. I'm working on this, you know, sort of a supplement to the research that you're talking about here. 
but really every year it's getting longer and longer for the agency to process. And so processing times for the applicants, we're talking about a year to process some of the most basic forms in the system. You know, more complicated forms, you could be talking two, three, some cases even five years to get processed as a result of really the time it takes. And when you add it up, when you're talking about hundreds of thousands, really the agency adjudicates about 8 million forms a year. If you add even 5% in the time it takes to go through a form, you're talking about adding months of waiting for every applicant who applies. And that's what we're seeing. It's just the continuous increase in wait times for applicants. We're speaking with David Beer. He is Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. And by the way, all of the people crossing the southern border and arriving by boat illegally, do they all fill out these forms? Or is this strictly people that are trying to come by the standard legal means from all countries that fill out the forms? Well, it depends on what happens to the person who crosses the border illegally. If they try to apply for asylum, then, yeah, they would fill out a form and try to apply. And so, yeah, it it would include that, though, most of those people are not applying through USCIS. They'd be part of the immigration court system, which is the Department of Justice. They would, however, be supplying uh, the same information. And they also face incredible waits from the Department of Justice to get their applications processed. Again, we're talking five years to get to the front of that line if you're trying to receive asylum. So basically, you have a system being stuffed by the sheer numbers of people trying to come to the country. Then you have a system stuffed downstream by the sheer amount of information and paperwork those people fill out. And that, in turn, fills the pipeline of the system for adjudicating these, the Justice Department the immigration lawyers who are facing longer and longer backlog. So it's getting sclerotic then, basically, it sounds like. Yeah, you're getting hit both directions. Yes, there are more people trying to come, but also the agency is not becoming more efficient. And you can actually see this. They just released this new regulation saying they want to increase the fees for all these different types of applications. They want to charge some really staggering amounts of money to applicants and Americans who are sponsoring uh, legal immigrants. And if you look at, you know, how long it's taking an adjudicator, once they actually get to the file and, you know, are looking at the file, how long it takes, some of it's nine minutes for an application. And the applicant is waiting a year to get to the point where someone is going to look at that file for nine minutes. And so there's this staggering wait time to get a really brief, you know, I mean, you're looking, okay, did they check the right boxes? But if that nine minutes increases to 12 minutes, that's a huge increase in the wait when you play it out because of how much time, how many applicants there are versus how many adjudicators there are. So it is really problematic when there's any increase in how long it takes to go through a form. And, you know, if you increase the number of pages, you're increasing the amount of time it will take an adjudicator to go through the forms. And if you go down a list of all of the different types of applications, it's just taking those adjudicators more time to go through 
and review them. And so it's producing incredibly long waits and making legal immigration much more challenging. And if you look at which particular forms have grown the most, one went in a couple of years from two pages to 18 pages, and that's the 1-130-1-130A petition for alien spouse that went from two to 18 pages. So this is for a U.S. citizen or legal permanent resident trying to sponsor their spouse to come legally to this country. And yeah, the agency... I mean, ninefold increase since 2016. So they're just really not looking to find efficiencies in the process. They're just constantly looking for ways to increase the amount of data collection and, you know, what can we do to use our authority in, in new ways. Is there anything that can be done? I mean, the agency would have to voluntarily stop collecting certain information and they must feel they need this information to be able to make fair judgments. So what's the answer here? Well, you would think if this information was actually producing different outcomes, then okay, maybe it's worth it. But there hasn't been an increase in denial rates or as a consequence of this. It's really, uh, you know, the vast majority of applicants do get approved if they're legal immigrants, um, you know, people going through the process. Now, asylum is is different, but that's one of the forms that hasn't increased in length. So if you look at it, it's really just about bureaucracy run amok, not about producing different outcomes at the end of the day, you know, for taxpayers who or, or for the government who is trying to make sure that we have security and make sure that people are eligible for what they're applying for. We're not seeing any change. So what is the benefit? Uh, There isn't one. David Beer is Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. Thanks so much for joining me. Of course, anytime. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership Today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I uh, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. 
Um, they're they're really heroes. And um, so I was I was drawn when I, I and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at Special Olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, 
Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Triver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.